So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open that up to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to look at God's Word together, just one verse. The name of this series is a three-part series, and the name of the series is Benediction, Living in the Good of God's Grace. And benediction, it's not a word that we use a whole lot, but benediction is just a word that means blessing. It has to do with speaking a word of blessing over an individual, speaking a word of blessing over a group of people. And so there are benedictions in Scripture, and this is one of them. So just look at the last verse in chapter 13. That's going to be our focus. For some of you, that last verse is verse 14. For some of you, it's verse 13. And let me just say so that nobody's distracted by that. The Christian Standard Bible didn't take anything out of God's Word. That would be a major fail for translation. So nothing's been taken out of God's Word. This is just simply a decision as to how to number the last three verses of this text and whether or not verses 12 and 13 in uh, traditional Bibles or older translations really needs two verses or just one. So it's all there. Can we just all be clear? Just breathe a sigh. Nothing's been changed in God's Word. It's all here. Here's the thing. Um... We're going to spend three weeks on this one verse. There is, there is so much truth packed into each one of these little phrases as you move through three phrases that we just want to slow down. So as a church, we study at different paces from time to time. So when, when I think in 2015 it was, where uh, I preached through Isaiah chapter 1 through chapter 35 in one message. So that was a 35-chapter message from Isaiah. And then here we are this morning, and we're going to spend three weeks in one verse. That can be helpful, just looking so that we don't miss the forest for the trees, so taking in large chunks of Scripture and saying, okay, this is the main thing that's going on there. This is the arc of this entire book. That can be helpful. But, but then you get to passages like this, where you have so much that's packed into these words that it, it helps us from time to time to slow down and say, let's really dig into each one of these phrases. Let's slow down and study it. So that's what I'm hoping to do by God's grace for these next three weeks. Verse 13 or 14 for you. Follow along. Apostle Paul writes these words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I don't know if the late night talk shows still do this. I haven't watched them in some years. But back, back in the day, and by the day I mean the 90s or the 80s, the late night talk show people would sometimes do this thing that they called man on the street. And so the talk show host would go out with a microphone into the streets of unsuspecting passersby and just ask questions to them. They weren't ready for this, and so you're just catching them off guard as they walk by. What do you think about this? Or who's the, you know, who's the congressman for this you know, city? Just people would be caught off guard, and they would just give these answers that were absolutely hilariously funny. Just carry that, if you've seen that, carry that over and just imagine for a moment that we walked into downtown Birmingham and we had a microphone and we caught people off guard and we asked them this question. What can you tell me about Jesus Christ? And just before we get to downtown Birmingham, think if somebody came up to you spontaneously right now, what would you say? Think about that. Would you have a ready answer to the question, what can you tell me about Jesus Christ? That might be something good to talk about later on with friends or 
as a family. And so let's say the first person comes up and they go the historical route, right? Jesus was a Jewish man born in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago, and she proceeds to talk about various historical things that centered around the life of Jesus. Maybe the next person who's walking by, you catch them, and the next person says he was a religious figure of, of huge proportions. He began a movement that later developed into what is now called Christianity, and so in that way, he's not only a famous world leader, but he's a famous world leader with major religious significance. And then let's say when that person's answering that question, there's someone standing behind him. And so you just say, sir, what about you? And you bring that person forward. And having heard the answer that was just given, maybe this person says, I don't know a whole lot about the history of religion or the development of ideas. Um, here's, Here's what I would say about Jesus Christ. He's my Savior and my Lord. And I love him. And when I die, I'm going to be with him in glory forever. And that's a different answer, isn't it, than the two that we heard before. The two that we heard before were accurate insofar as they shared some interesting facts, true things about Jesus as a historical figure. But that third person didn't see Jesus as just some historical interest or intriguing character from the annals of history, he sees Jesus as the answer to life, the one that he's living for as a companion. He loves him. There's this relationship language, right? There's a big difference between those two. In that sense, I think this series that we're going to study these three weeks is about the most important thing in life. This series is about knowing God. (laughs) This series is about living life with God in our everyday existence. I think the reason there's so little difference in many places between Christians and the surrounding culture is because, and let me just target this on our own city right here in our own context, is because we live in a city where so many have Christianity as a concept rather than a a life-transforming power. There's no reality, there's no inward fire, no work that God is doing from the inside that moves its way out into the way that we live our lives. And when we're talking about conceptual Christianity, we're talking about a Christianity that isn't Christianity. It's not a Christianity that saves. Christian concepts don't save. Jesus saves. Christian concepts don't hold us steady in the trials of life. The Father does. Christian concepts don't give us power to step toward freedom and correct us when we're walking towards something that's self-destructive. The Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of self-destructive patterns in our life. He shows us the way to freedom. He empowers us to move in that direction. So in that sense, this verse is really about the the powerful operations of the Trinity in the heart of the believer. This is huge, this is cosmic, this is the difference between not Christianity and real, lived-in, power, transformation-driven Christianity. Now, now, I think we need to stop here because we're looking at a verse that is Trinitarian. And it's good for us to stop because this is a major feature of a biblical faith, is that we believe in a God who is triune. One person, uh, rather three persons in one God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. As the Westminster Catechism said, these three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. That's the truth of Scripture. Now, 
In one sense, I think we need to hasten to add what is often told to us by those who don't believe in the Trinity, that the word Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible. But when you read through the New Testament, you can see the operations of God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit. You can see that truth all over the New Testament. Think about, for example, the way that we close our gatherings, Sunday after Sunday. Jesus Christ stands before his disciples speaks the words of what we call now the Great Commission. And what does he say? He says, you go out into the world and you make disciples. And when people follow, decide that they're going to follow me and they believe the teaching that you brought to them, that gospel, baptize them, he says, what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just say baptize them in the name of God. Baptize them into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples, he said, the Father will send the Spirit in my name. Notice what's happening there. That's Jesus saying, the first person of the Trinity will send the third person of the Trinity in the name of the second person of the Trinity. What does that tell you? It tells you the Spirit isn't the Father, the Father isn't the Son, and the Son isn't the Spirit. Three persons are in the one God. And at the same time, you study the New Testament and you see the Spirit is God, fully God. The Son is God, fully God. And the Father is God, fully God. The doctrine of the Trinity, friends, is not some secondary matter to be debated by kind of theology nerds. It is a matter of utmost importance. If we don't believe in the triune God, we don't believe in the right God. He is triune, a single person God is a different one than the New Testament revealed God. You think about that the single person God of strictly monotheistic faiths is simply not the same being as the triune God of Christian faith. For example, the New Testament says God is love. If God is a single person being, he didn't have to love anyone until he created humanity. Right, what was he doing before that? He lived in eternal solitude. He lived in eternal isolation. One wonders what would motivate such a being ever to create anything at all. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be an irritating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure had been looking in the mirror for a billion years? A single person, solitary God doesn't make sense of what we see in the New Testament. So when the New Testament says God is love and we know he's triune, that makes total sense. He's lived in an ecstatic circle of fellowship for all eternity. Unbroken fellowship, Father, Son, Spirit, singing, commendation, praise, honor, at and toward each other for all eternity, in eternity past before the creation of the world. And so that kind of God, the triune God, doesn't begrudge having one beside him. He enjoys it. So think about, for example, in this mysterious, glorious words that Jesus shares when he prays before his disciples in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And he gives you a window into eternity past. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing a million years before Genesis chapter one? 
The Father was loving the Son and the Son loving the Father, the Spirit, three in one. It's a mutual honor society, this grace nation. And then you come into Genesis chapter one and, and the triune God enlarges the circle and said, let's create man in our image. Let's invite him into this experience and allow the world to share this joy with us. Trinity is a deeply important doctrine. So, so what is, as we study this particular text, what is this benediction that God speaks over our lives if we're followers of Jesus? It is, I would submit to you, a threefold blessing that begins, you see that first phrase, by pointing to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace could be defined as undeserved blessing freely bestowed on humans by God. You say that again. This is grace. Grace is undeserved blessing freely bestowed on humans by God. So what we're seeing in this passage is grace is being given. It's a word of, number one, grace to the church. Grace to the church. The apostle is talking to the church. He's talking to the congregation that makes up the membership of the church at Corinth. And Paul loves speaking grace to the church. It's his favorite word to speak to the church. He can't say goodbye. In any of his letters and correspondences with the New Testament churches, he cannot leave the room without saying, grace be upon you. Don't take my word for it. We'll just run through really rapid fire style. Romans, end of Romans. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 1 Corinthians, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And then we're, our passage, we just read that a moment ago. Then keep going. Galatians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Ephesians, grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians, grace be with you. 1 Thessalonians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Thessalonians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That little exercise took you to all the times where Paul is departing, ending his letter to all the churches that he wrote in the New Testament. He he never tires of benediction. Correction isn't his favorite thing to do when he comes to church. He will correct in Corinth, right? You've read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There is correction, but it's almost in this grace sandwich. He comes in the door saying, grace to you, and then he leaves, grace to you for all the correction. That's not his fastball. That's not his favorite thing. He never tires of benediction. And notice, he said grace to you to Galatia. Galatia was a mess. Galatia was borderline heretical. Galatia heard him anathematize and say, if you believe another gospel, let that person be damned, right? That's his language that he uses. It's It's a curse. Strong words, and yet even in Galatia, he ends with grace to you. Even in Corinth, he says grace to you. Paul had a a fathering relationship to the church at Corinth. He said as much. He said, "You, you have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers. And he said, I became a father to you in the proclamation of the gospel. And yet if you extend that metaphor, and Paul is the father of this congregation, the church at Corinth is like a son who's disrespecting his dad, who thinks everybody else's dad is cooler than the one that he's got. 
right, who hears every word that his dad speaks with a, a, an air of suspicion about whether or not it's right or whether or not it's true. Rolls his eyes at the Apostle Paul. And Paul said, you look, and you're looking at all these super apostles. And then it's almost like Paul knocks on the door to get in, and they slide the little slit open. And they say, who are you? Show us your recommendation papers. And Paul says, you are my letters of recommendation. I've shed blood for you. That's, that's Corinth. And yet even a disobedient, wayward son like Corinth, how does he end his notices? Grace to you. Grace to you, Corinth. You come to the end of letters like Corinthians and Philippians. Philippians is the good son. Philippians is the, they're the, they're the child that loves Paul back. They, he is dear to them and, and they are dear to him. It's a wonderful relationship. And yet you read the last verse of Philippians and the last verse of Corinthians, you can't tell which church is which. You can't tell which church is breaking his heart and which church is dear to him. Because he ends it all. He leaves them all with grace. You know, I think there's even here an application for Father's Day. Dads, instead of saying to you this morning, hey, do better. I know you can do better. Dig deep. What if we looked at each other and we said, hey, brother, the calling is real. Grace to you. Strength. God's, God's grace be with you. This calling isn't sustainable without the forgiving grace of God, without the empowering grace of God. And all the dads in this room can feel that very, very profoundly. Yet bear in mind, this isn't just the Apostle Paul talking, right? There's an author, capital A, above the human author. This is God's word. Corinthians is God's word to the church, not just the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, but to Every church where the gospel is believed and where God is worshiped in spirit and in truth, if Jesus were to be here and show up in every one of these gospel proclaiming churches around the world, you know what he'd do? He'd say to healthy churches and stumbling churches, he'd say to bold churches and timid churches and persecuted churches, he'd say to theologically nuanced and theologically stout churches and just the gospel basics churches, he'd say to all of them, Grace to you. Grace to you, brothers and sisters. If Jesus were here at the Church of Brook Hills this very morning bodily, we have a very good guess as to what he might say. Brook Hills, grace to you. Grace go with you. And what does that mean given our definition of grace? It means Jesus would be saying, you are the undeserving recipients of the favor of God. It's an awesome thing. I've met people over the years in ministry who love it when the message is abrasive, harsh, almost give you the impression that, hey, listen, you want to you help this church, get your two by four out and smack us upside the head. That's, that's when you're really preaching the gospel. It needs to come hard. It needs to hurt. I want hard news, not just good news. Good news is cushy, it's soft, it doesn't make strong Christians. Give me the hard stuff, right? Here's the thing, and I've discovered over 23 years of hearing stuff like that, you scratch under the surface of a statement like that, and often, nine times out of ten, you find out the hard news they want isn't the kind of preaching that convicts that person, but convicts somebody else. 
They want somebody else to get it straight up the middle fast and hard. They want somebody else to feel the two by four upside their head. And yet Paul's parting words, even to erring churches beset by sin and error, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's a staggering different feel of what church is supposed to be, right? You think about us, why do we, why do we end our services with the Great Commission rather than a benediction like this? You might ask that question. Why do we leave with commands ringing in our ears instead of grace ringing in our ears? Paul left in this way, and yet we leave with a great commission. Wonderful text, but why do we leave that way when Paul left the churches some other way? Friends, I hope you hear the great commission differently this morning, if that's your view. Because the great commission does have commands that we need ringing in our ears on our way out. But do you know how Jesus ends the great commission? I'm with you. Always. To the end of the age. What is the one who is with us? He is grace incarnate. It's grace is with you. I'm with you. You can't shake me. My dad used to say, sometimes my brother and I would play football in the front yard and I would cover Paul. And if I wasn't covering my brother Paul well, my dad would say, I want you on him like white on rice. I don't know if that was a Texas statement that he picked up from his, his mom or whatever. And I'm not sure that that translation is ever going to make it into the Great Commission, but that's a great idea, right? Almost the sense in which Jesus is saying, and lo, I'm on you like white on rice. <laughs> I am with you. I am tracking you. You can't shake me off this week. I'm with you always. It's a promise of grace. Grace to the church, second, grace to the world. Grace to the world. We know the story of salvation history, that God wanted to save a people from their sin and their brokenness, and so what did he do? He didn't send a workout plan. He didn't send a religious, moral regimen for us to follow. He sent a savior. He sent Jesus. He gave his son sent him into the world. This is right. This is the verse you first learned if you grew up in church. For God so loved the world that he gifted the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gifted a fallen, broken world a savior. That's how the New Testament speaks of the incarnation. That's in your notes. Scripture speaks of Jesus' incarnation as the arrival of a gift not just the arrival of any gift, the arrival of grace. So you think about, and we're going to look at this in Scripture in just a moment, how the greatest act of redemption in the entire Old Testament was the Exodus. The people were taught and were trained to think in patterns of sound words that they had even back then, where they would repeatedly say, all generations would say, God is the one who brought us up out of the land of Egypt and rescued us with a mighty hand. They all knew that. They trained it generation after generation. They all knew how to finish that sentence. They knew it. This was his redemptive act. Well, you come over into the New Testament, and Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new and better Moses. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with words from God. Jesus comes down from heaven, and he is the living logos. He is the living word. He is God's best word, saved for last. Moses points the way of salvation in the Old Testament. Moses leads the people out from bondage and into the promised land. What does Jesus do? He says, I am the way. 
Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, breaks the grip of sin over our lives and liberates us from sin's power. That's Romans chapter 6. And then in the Gospel of John, we read these words. Note the contrast in these words. It's on the screen. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Two leaders of redemptive exodus bringing two different things. Moses comes with the law. Jesus comes with grace and truth. Law was given through Moses. Just look at that phrase for a second and think about where he's taking us. In your imagination, where he's taking the reader is to Mount Sinai. He's taking you to the Exodus. You're at Mount Sinai. Thunder's barking in the background. Everybody's scared to death. Moses is coming down the mountain, and he's got something in his arms. And what is it? Rocks, basically. It's a stone tablet with Ten Commandments on it. Earlier in the life of the Church of Brook Hills, there was a statement, kind of a tagline, we throw ropes, not rocks. That wasn't written at the base of Mount Sinai. He came down with rocks. Matter of fact, there was, if there was a sign at the base of Mount Sinai, it said, touch this, you die. And there was probably like a dead dog next to the sign. This was the reality. You don't mess with God's holiness. You touch this mountain, you die. It doesn't matter who you are. But John chapter 1 contrasts the primary emphasis of Moses' ministry with the primary emphasis of Jesus' ministry. Moses came with an armful of law, with an armful of rocks. Jesus comes with grace and with truth. Then you move forward, Ephesians chapter 4. You get another picture of what happens through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul says, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says... Now he's going to quote the Old Testament in reference to Jesus. When he, Jesus, ascended on high, he took captives captive. He gave gifts to people. What's Paul doing? He's saying Jesus is the new Moses. He's saying this is a new exodus. He's using the language. He took captivity captive. What does he mean? He means Jesus made off, is making off with Satan's workforce. He's setting them free, saying, let my people go. And then, kind of like Moses, but different, Jesus ascends and gives something. But instead of going up, like Moses did, and then doling out law, Jesus, in Ephesians 4, goes up and doles out gifts. Gifts of grace. Now, to be sure, in Ephesians 4, it's gifts of grace to the church. But the grace that the church experiences isn't meant to be kept by the church. It's meant to be unleashed out into the world. Come back to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. And just note what grace does. Grace is in motion. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I love that phrase. As grace extends to more and more people. Why missions? Why let's find unreached people groups and let's plant churches by the grace of God? Why? Because grace wants to do something, and according to Paul, what it wants to do is it wants to extend to more and more and more people so that that increases thanksgiving to God all around the world. Grace is in 
gear. Grace is moving. Grace is meant to be shared, not hoarded. My, my daughter Ellie is, um, is unique in our family in the sense that when we go and we order something that maybe she's never ordered before, and if it tastes great, the rest of our family will buckle down over it and say, don't touch this, this is really awesome, and I ordered it, right? Ellie is, has much more Christian impulse, and um, Ellie will say, this is so good, you have to have this. She, like, she's like, dig, dig your fork into this, dig your spoon into this, take a bite of this pop. She's just got to share it because it's so good. And she'll apply pressure. She is not okay with you not eating this, with you not trying this. That, that in a sense, is supposed to be a parable of the Christian life. We, we want others. It's like, this is so good. You have to taste this. This is unbelievable. Trust me, you're going to eat this, right? That, that's this is the spirit that's it's pent up, but we let it out, right? When our family was traveling just a couple weeks ago, and we, um, we were flying out of Atlanta, so we took an Uber. We stayed over in Atlanta, and we took an Uber both there and back. And I'm trying to share the gospel with the Uber driver on the way and then a different Uber driver on the way back. Two totally different drivers, two totally different experiences in those conversations. And I was really... I was really bumping along in that second one. It wasn't going very well. I'm like, the kids are back there, and I'm just epically not doing great in my gospel conversation moment. I'm trying to turn it. I'm trying to finesse the conversation, trying to be elegant in my transition. And then I'm like, whatever. What do you, what do you know about Jesus? He's changed our lives. It's, I just barreled in. It's like I'm not pulling all this other stuff off, so let me just get straight to the point. This is amazing. <laughs> you need to taste this. This is life-changing. You never know what the Holy Spirit's going to do with, with that. You must taste this and telling the story of what Jesus alone does and has done. My, my friend Joel Kurtz is a pastor of a church in the inner city of Baltimore. We got to spend some extended time this week because he and some people that he's related to and working with in the church stayed in our house and he planted his church 10 years ago in 2009, and, but, uh, and this is going to sound strange, but he just baptized his wife two Sundays ago. She thought that she was a Christian when she was a teenager, and so she went into the waters at the age of 14, but it wasn't real. Um, it wasn't a heart relationship, and that became increasingly obvious, especially when they planted this church. They planted the church, and all hell broke loose, it was spiritual warfare, and she was saying, I hate Joel, my husband. I hate the church. I don't believe this stuff. I don't know why. And she was, before she even told Joel, she said, my, my husband would tell me, I need you to go. Let's go to the park and let's try to share and open up conversations with people. And she said, in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't want to open conversations. I don't even believe it. It started to show. She started to show that out. She writes this, pressures of it all. She said, I started to get drunk to numb the pain. I would drink so much and stay out so late. I don't know how I made it home in one piece. I finally came up with a plan to do whatever I could to make Joel as miserable as possible. Then he would finally tell me to leave. I followed through with my plan, but I couldn't get him to tell me to leave. 
I gave myself over to severe sins and didn't admit everything to him right away. But I told him that I wanted out. I honestly hated my husband. I hated this church. She's telling this from the waters two Sundays ago. She says, it was July of 2010 when I told him I wanted to leave. I knew I wasn't a Christian. I remember asking Joel one day if he would be okay if I wasn't a Christian. He told me he would still love me, but that he wouldn't be okay with it. He said, if that's the case, I would preach the gospel to you every day if I have to. And he did. For a solid six months, he patiently preached the gospel to me while trying to work himself out of a job. For six months, I refused to believe and refused to find any hope in faith or in our marriage. Then she writes, in January of 2011, something changed. I now believe that what changed is this. I was converted. The Holy Spirit of God convicted me of my sins, assured me that Christ took the penalty for my sin on the cross and rose again from the dead. I repented of my sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. It happened in a moment, but I can't tell you exactly when that moment was. All I know is that Joel took me out to a restaurant and I confessed it to him. As I confessed sin to him, I confessed it to God and was assured of his forgiveness. I not only felt grace and love from Joel, I felt grace and love from God. I felt a weight lifted off me. I felt as if I literally hit rock bottom and God broke through my wicked and dark heart and saved me. I was saved under the faithful preaching of my husband. The hopelessness that I had always felt was gone. I grew with an insatiable desire to be in the word, and even better, the Bible made sense to me. I had a new desire to pour into other people, share the gospel with others, and serve the church. These were just some of the beautiful evidences from the spirit that God had saved me. And then she said two Sundays ago, from the waters of baptism, it took me some time to realize that I was converted in 2011, which is why I am just now being baptized. But I wanna be baptized today because I believe I was not a Christian when I got dunked at 14 years old, and I want to obey Jesus. And her husband, Joel, told me this week, he said, Matt, it was the most emotional Sunday in my life. He said, I put her underneath the waters, and he said, I tried, but I could not. I was crying so hard, I couldn't say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, I think you need a redo, because <laughs> if there were ever a Sunday where it's okay that he couldn't actually verbally enunciate the formula, surely that had to be the Sunday, right? It's the grace of God. What happened to my friend's wife? Answer, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ found her, and the rest was history. Grace to the church, grace to the world, and finally, grace to you. Grace to you. You can go ahead and fill this point in while you're there. To stand in God's presence is to realize I need grace. If you do not feel your need for grace, you have not stood in the presence of a holy God. You have not reckoned with God as he reveals himself in his word. And friend, 
I need grace isn't just something we feel internally the day that we believe. I need grace is the reality in which we live and move and have our being. We need grace. We do not deserve God's favor. We have not merited anything from him but judgment. That's why grace should never be anything but amazing. It's amazing on day one. It's amazing on year 23, 53. It gets more and more amazing. The grace of God. We never grow familiar with this awesome good news. But you know the problem with the Pharisees? They didn't need grace. I don't need a handout. Seriously, I'm not your charity case. I'm doing quite well in my relationship with God. We're not what's wrong with the world. That's what they're saying in so many words. We're not what's wrong with the world, but we can tell you who is. Dirty Gentiles. Jokers like Zacchaeus. Matthew the tax collector. Lepers. Bad girls. People who don't practice Old Testament ceremonial law. Pretty much the whole population of Samaria. Right, they're willing to throw everybody under the ball. They all need grace. We don't. And that's why they look at Jesus in John chapter 9, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. He just healed this, uh, this boy who's blind from birth. And then he's meddling with them. And they say, wait, hold on. Are you saying that we're blind? And Jesus said, no, if, if you were blind, I could heal you. But because you think you see, your blindness remains. Your sin remains. You think you have it all together. Friend, if there is a person in this world or a kind of person in this world that you'd like to see them get what's coming to them, it may be that you've never tasted the grace of God. If vengeance is your first impulse, maybe you never tasted grace. Grace is the favorite theme of those who have been brought near to a holy God through the perfect work of someone else, not our own. And grace is the message we have for the church. Grace is the message we have for the world. Grace is the message we take to those who are far from God. And there are people far from God who are also far from us. That's why, again, we're engaged in global missions. They're far from us and they're far from God, and we want grace to reach them. We want the message of Jesus to find them way over there on the other side of the world. So we take the message to those who are far from God and far from us. But listen, there are people close to us but far from God. There are people within a five-mile radius, thousands of them probably, who are close to us but far from God. There might be people who are far from God. They're so close, they're actually in this room right now. Maybe you're far from God. You've not repented, you've not believed, you've not put your trust in the only one who can save you. You're still relying on yourself or you're still living a dismissive, God-dismissing life. And I would call you, friend, to turn, run in the direction of the only one hope of the world. Run, let him forgive your sins, let him cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Put your life in his hands. Ditch concept conceptual Christianity this morning and get the real thing. What do you mean by the real thing? I mean the, the, the thing that buries you beneath the waters and brings you up a new person. Get the thing that gives you a savior who will take your blame and give you his righteousness. Get the thing that gives you a father who will take you into his forever family will love you perfectly. Get the thing that gives you his spirit, that he places his spirit 
inside to teach and transform you. Get the real thing. Here's, here's my wish, my wish list for the church of Brook Hills. What I want for Brook Hills in a word is grace. Justifying grace, sanctifying grace, convicting grace, comforting grace, sustaining grace, all these things that grace gets done in our lives. I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue people from what's killing them. I want grace to come and break yokes of legalism and false guilt off people's lives. I want grace to find you when your world is caving in in the midst of trials and suffering. I want grace to make us a contagiously joyful people, irrepressibly hopeful people. To quote the Apostle Paul, I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with you all to fire our zeal for witness, to animate our Christ-centered worship, to multiply missionaries to the ends of the earth. That's what grace does. Grace is an active thing in the church. So, so what can we take home? Very practically and very briefly, three things. Number one, master the gospels. Master the Gospels. Live in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Don't ever be far from the Gospels. Write, you walk through the Gospels and you read page after page, write down everything you're learning about Jesus, about who he is, what he's like, his way with sinful people, his way with broken people, his way with arrogant and self-righteous people, his clarifying remarks about what matters, his clarifying remarks about what doesn't matter, his clarifying remarks about the nature of his kingdom. Write it down, swim in it. Get it all around you and be shaped by the life, ministry, and words of the Savior himself. Two, trust his grace. How might Monday be different, tomorrow morning be different, if you woke up and trusted God has you in his grip of grace? How might you face the day different? What might you do different tomorrow if you trusted him more? Pray that you would trust him more. Love that old hymn that asks that at the very end. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Third, ditch conceptual Christianity, or you could say cultural Christianity. Christianity in concept. Ditch that. Go all in with Jesus. Tell him today, if necessary, tell him today, Jesus, whatever... I hear you saying in your word, I'm saying yes. Whatever's in that next chapter of the Bible, it's already yes for me. I'm leaning forward. I don't want to hesitate. I don't want to play religious games. I want grace to be a live, living, vibrant experience in my life that's transformative. That's, that's what happens, church. That's what happens when we situate ourselves under the gospel week after week and day after day when we sit beneath the powerful word of God's benediction. It's what it looks like for us to live in the good of God's grace.